Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. The Drinking Hour on Food FM. You're listening to The Drinking Hour with David Kermode in association with the International Wine and Spirit Competition, using the best in the world to judge the best in the world. Hello, and welcome to The Drinking Hour from Food FM with me, David Kermode. Episode 86, and this week we're joined by renowned Bordeaux expert Stephen Brook, whose superlative work, The Complete Bordeaux, the fourth edition, has just been released. Plus, later on, some medal-winning wines from the IWSC Hall of Fame. The Drinking Hour on Food FM. Bordeaux scarcely needs an introduction. The world's largest fine wine producing region, well over 100,000 hectares, uh, more than four times the size of Burgundy. It's also the most famous in the world and sometimes the most controversial, commanding some of the highest prices for its wines. Though these days, it has to be said, Burgundy gives it a run for its money. Who better to extol the virtues of this magnificent region than Stephen Brook, an acclaimed Bordeaux expert, the author of the newly released fourth edition of The Complete Bordeaux. Stephen, welcome to The Drinking Hour. Thank you. I say extol the virtues, but actually, uh, to give you credit, you paint a very balanced picture of Bordeaux, I think. This is no hagiography. So we should um, reflect all of that. But let's begin by talking about the positives. Um, what makes Bordeaux so magnificent, uh, do you think? It's a combination of, of factors. Um, climatically, it's just in the right spot. It's got some maritime influence, which gives the wines their, their freshness. It has uh, different but magnificent soil types, which are perfectly adapted to the major grape varieties of Bordeaux. And something that perhaps isn't talked about so much, but since the 18th century, there's been a very strong commercial structure in, in place. It was the nobility that owned the vineyards, but there, was, there were a large number of um, Irish, Dutch, British merchants based in Bordeaux, and it was their task, as it is today, to distribute the wines, to sell the wines, so that the, the nobility didn't have to uh, sully themselves with the dirty commercial matters. But that created a sort of worldwide network for the, and demand for the, for the wines of Bordeaux. So as I say, it's a m- mixture of different factors. A very good summary. Bordeaux's impact is felt all over the world, of course, and not just the quality of its wines. Its legacy has been all sorts of factors um, in terms of grape varieties and, and blends, hasn't it? Um, Yes. I mean, it's been the model for countless other wine regions in the world. I mean, Napa Valley is an obvious example, or Coonawara in in Australia. These these are regions that have tried to not not copy, but to emulate the the magic of Bordeaux by planting the same varieties and aiming for a similar 
climatic uh, backgrounds which would allow them to make wines that would have at least a, a passing uh, resemblance to, to Bordeaux. But of course, Bordeaux is sui generis. Nothing takes, tastes quite like Bordeaux except Bordeaux. But there are other regions in the world that have clearly been influenced by, by Bordeaux and which do make extremely good wines. In your introduction, one of my favourite parts was uh, where you try to identify just what it is that makes Bordeaux what it is in terms of, uh, as you say, it's been emulated uh, all around the world, and yet there's something. Um, I called it a je ne sais quoi there. Uh, Those are my my words. But uh, uh, you do come up with a a few thoughts as to what it is that makes it distinctive and special, don't you? Well, other regions such as Napa in California or Kunawara in uh, South Australia can emulate Bordeaux in the sense they plant the same grape varieties and they have a a climate that, while not identical to Bordeaux, is uh, not dissimilar in certain respects. So it's not a a foolish ambition for those regions. And there are others, like the Tuscan coast, that try and produce wines that are, as I say, emulate Bordeaux without actually copying Bordeaux. But what Bordeaux's got, which these other wines or other regions can't really uh, establish, this is a term uh, I've pinched from uh, our best wine writer, Hugh Johnson, cut, which is there's something on the palate that, that... there's fruit, of course, but there's also some acidity, there's tannins, there's structure, there's a compound of different elements that keeps the wine lively on the palate and also gives the wine its capacity to age. Cut is a personal and rather um, uh, not very accurate term in a, in a way, but I understand exactly what is meant. And you won't find that so much in Napa Valley. In Napa Valley, you get all the ripeness of the Bordeaux varieties, a plushness, um, a generosity of uh, oak usage and so on, but you're unlikely to get that, that, that brightness, that cut that you can find, I think, only in, in Bordeaux. Yes. I mean, as you say, uh, Hugh is a, a great man from whom to uh, to borrow, and, and he does have this ability to uh, to identify uh, things like that and write about it uh, um, so so beautifully. You talked there about the soil types, uh, two major types: uh, gravel and clay limestone. Just uh, expand a little on on those soils and, and what makes them special. Yes, well, on on the left bank, and we're talking about uh, Grave, Sautern, and the Medoc. Um, there were enormous deposits, glacial deposits of gravel tens of thousands of years ago. And they vary in, in depth from a couple of meters to 10 or more meters. And what that does is it provides impeccable drainage so that the, the wines never get, vines never get waterlogged. Um, they uh, um, retain their, their vigor and their energy and they have other secondary advantages on uh, gravel soils. Gravel is really small stones rather than you know the gravel you'd associate with a gravel pit. Um, so that it, it will warm up during the day and retain and irradiate warmth during the night. So even in Bordeaux's relatively cool climate, the grapes continue to ripen well after the sun goes down. And then on the other side of the river, you've got um, clay soils and limestone soils. These are perfectly adapted to Merlot, which is the principal grape variety on the right bank, just as Cabernet Sauvignon is on the on the left bank. It's just a, a, a magical combination of soil type and grape variety. 
that just works. I mean, there are other soils in, in, in Bordeaux, but these are easily the most Im- important ones. In, in parts of the Medoc, you've got uh, fairly deep clay soils, which are cold, and uh, it's hard to get the grapes to, to ripen. So you know, you, if you want a great wine from the left bank, you really should be looking for gravel soils, and there's no shortage of them. And grape varieties, as you mentioned there, we tend to associate left bank with uh, Cabernet Sauvignon, right bank with Merlot. Uh, but you say uh, in the book it is um, more nuanced than that, isn't it? It is. There have always been, at least for the last 120 years, five principal grape varieties in, in Bordeaux, Cabernet Sauvignon, uh, Merlot, but also uh, Cabernet Franc, uh, Petit Verdot and Malbec in small quantities. So you've got this palette of, of flavours and structures. The uh, what, What's changed, I think, quite a lot in uh, recent years is that more Petit Verdot has been planted, especially in areas like Margot. It gives colour, gives density. Uh, you mustn't overdo it, but um, the, the growers refer to Petit Verdot as a kind of seasoning. Uh, it should never be the, the principal grape variety, but say 8%, 10% will give depth and grip to the, the palate, which is what they're, they're looking for. However, on the other bank, where Merlot is a dominant variety, there's increasing interest in, in Cabernet Franc. And the reason is that with global warming, Merlot is getting super ripe these days. And that means wines with very high alcohols, sometimes residual sugar, which is not really what most people are looking for from Bordeaux. It may pass muster in Napa Valley, but it's not what you want from a, a, a great Bordeaux. So Cabernet Franc ripens usually a, a bit earlier, at lower sugars, uh, better acidity. So it, it cuts the, the weight and the richness of the Merlot and gives a more complex wine. And there are leading estates on the right bank, such as Chevrolet Blanc and Ozone, where around 50% of the surface is planted to Cabernet Franc. So it's becoming an increasingly important factor. And this is a big change over the last, let's say, 20 years. I'll come to climate change uh, in a moment because it's it's, uh, really uh, reset the dial and it's fascinating and and, worrying at the same time. But let's just stick with the grape varieties for a moment more because um, you devote some of the the introduction uh, to those uh, varieties, obviously. They being so important. Um, and uh, you also have the percentage figures of plantings. And um, it, there's strikingly more Merlot than Cabernet Sauvignon, despite the fact that Cabernet tends to be the one that's revered the most, doesn't it? Yes, but it doesn't. It, it needs to get ripe. And there are areas where it doesn't get so ripe. And remember, there's a, a large area in, in Bordeaux that is... Um, well, unkind people would say they should be rather have planted potatoes than, than vines, but they are fairly undistinguished soils, especially in regions like the Entre de Mer or Bordeaux Supérieur. I'm not saying these are bad wines, but they're relatively simple wines. And Merlot is much easier to grow and to ripen. So it, it would be the, the, the grape of first choice for, for many growers. Um, whereas in the Grave or in the, the, the Medoc, um, if you have the right soils, we're talking about gravel soils, it would be a, a huge shame not to plant uh, Cabernet Sauvignon because it gives the most outstanding results. There was a, a little bit of talk, uh, you know, a, a couple of years ago about these new approved uh, varieties 
for Bordeaux. Um, are we seeing much impact from um, the varieties uh, that have been kind of imported from elsewhere to deal with climate change? No, no, not 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 yet. Um, that could change over the next ten years. Um, there are three or four varieties that might be well adapted to to Bordeaux, not getting overripe, not getting too high sugars, uh, having interesting flavours. The, the Bordelais are very cautious and only a very small percentage, I think 10% is the maximum that can be used in any blend. So it plays a relatively small part in the blends. I'm not even sure at what point um, these uh, varieties will become authorised. I think we're on the, on the brink of it now. I don't have the exact dates in, in my head. Um, but I think um, Bordeaux needs to retain its its character, its individuality. And if you introduce sort of alien flavors, however interesting, you're going to lose some of that uh, typicity. So I think the Bordeaux growers and authorities are being quite right in being very cautious about the introduction of new varieties, but at the same time keeping an open mind about the fact that they've got to do something about global warming and overripeness. And one of the uh, the measures that could deal with this and give greater balance to the wines could be the absorption of small quantities of these new or at least new to Bordeaux varieties. And I suppose they're helped by the fact that they have a culture of blending. Yes, yes. Uh, always ha- ha- has been like that. There, there are some pure Merlot wines, <clears throat> not, not a great many, but even in, in Sautern, most wines are a blend of, of two varieties, Sauvignon Blanc for acidity and freshness and Semillon for fat and richness and, and botrytis. So as you say, it's, it's an old Bordeaux tradition that's been going on for hundreds of years. Of course, before Phylloxera, there were varieties that we haven't heard of anymore because they're, they're extinct, extinct or weren't replanted because they gave very low yields for a variety of reasons. So there was a, a greater palette of varieties probably 150, 200 years ago than there is today. As I say, these days, we're really talking about a maximum of five grape varieties Mm. for the red wines. So climate change then. I was talking to uh, Margaret Rand, who you will know well, of course, uh, the other day for an edition of The Drinking Hour. And uh, she was talking about uh, uh, editing the the Pocket uh, Wine Book, which, of course, she does uh, for Hugh Johnson. And... um, uh, she talked about how in her 40 years, um, everything had changed as a result of climate change. Uh, the, the, the riper wines uh, being more easily produced um, and uh, the focus changing. And that, that is really true of Bordeaux, isn't it? Absolutely. Absolutely. <clears throat> it started really in the, in the late, uh, late uh, 2000s. And I remember in 2010, there were some wines, and we're talking really about ripe bank wines, where there's Merlot, which gets super ripe. There were wines with 15 and a half degrees of alcohol. Personally, I find pretty much undrinkable. I, I don't want to be whacked on the head with uh, uh, alcohol and flavor. I don't mind, you know, fairly high level of alcohol, but 15 and a half is just getting a little ridiculous. We're talking about Chateauneuf du Pape, and we don't want Chateauneuf du Pape when we're opening a bottle of Bordeaux. And I, I was doing what I suppose we now call a, a podcast about nearly 10 years ago with an American writer, and I, I mentioned a chateau, and I won't mention it again, that had um, um, erred by producing these highly alcoholic wines. And I later got a 2,000-word email from the proprietor, who I knew slightly, telling me in, uh, that, of course, as a wine writer, I knew much more about winemaking than he did. And so a very sort of sarcastic uh, 
um, uh, email. But the upshot was that I was in Bordeaux a few weeks later and went to see him. And we spent a very cordial couple of hours talking about all these issues. And now the same pro- property uh, has been sold and there's a new team in there and they are actively exploring ways to get the grapes to ripen earlier so as to avoid very high sugars and consequently very high alcohols. So even Bordeaux proprietors on the right bank are aware that this is a problem. Yes, there's a market for for these wines, just as there is in, say, Barossa Valley for wines with 16 alcohol. But I think people with long experience of Bordeaux know that these are sort of aberrations, and that should not be the the way forward for, for Bordeaux. But it's a very tricky issue because... There are various, say, facile ways of dealing with um, overripeness. For example, you could crop to a much higher level, so by which I mean you have higher yields. So you're producing more wine, and because you've got more bunches on the vine, you're going to get a lower level of ripeness. But the downside of that is you also may get greenness. You may get herbaceous aromas and flavors, which nobody really wants. Um, so there are no sort of easy solutions. One thing that I think a lot of growers are doing is they, they're abandoning this emphasis, which is very common even today in California, in Napa Valley, of going for phenolic ripeness. That is to say, it's not just enough for the grapes to be uh, ripe, but the pips have to be ripe, the seeds have to be ripe, and that only happens when uh, you get very high sugars. And that's when you get these these monstrous wines with, with very high alcohols. And there are people in California, and certainly in Bordeaux, who are saying, you know, this phenolic ripeness stuff, it's, it's a nonsense. You're just ending up with unbalanced wines. And what you need to do is find ways, primarily in the vineyard rather than in the, the winery, to, um, to produce wines with better balance and less weight and sweetness. I and mean, one thing they do in, uh, in California is they, they water, water back, I think they call it. Basically, they add water to the wine, which will bring down the alcohol. It'll also bring down some of the flavors. So it's not a route that I think anybody in Bordeaux would want to, uh, to pursue. And anyway, I think it's probably illegal. So it's, it, it's a real issue, especially on the, on the right bank. But the Baudelaire are well aware of it and are gradually getting to grips with it. It's taken them a while, but they're, they're now starting. Mm. And sustainability is a big deal in Bordeaux. I mean, you mention in the book that it's scarcely worth mentioning the uh, HVE uh, standard yes. of some of these estates because pretty much everyone does it. Exactly. I mean, sustainability is really pretty meaningless. But the HVE system, which applies to agriculture as a whole, not simply to, to grape farming, lays down certain uh, criteria, certain methods that um, are environmentally sound, of um, uh, that provide a healthy working environment for vineyard workers. After all, if you're spraying a lot of toxic products in your vineyards, it's going to affect some of the, the vignerons, the vineyard workers as well. So it's, it's quite a, a complex issue. But certainly it's, it's positive that the Bordeaux at long last are thinking about sustainability and laying down criteria for a healthy grape production. Um, because it wasn't like that in the, in the, in the past. Um, Bordeaux was very slow to take on organic farming and biodynamic farming. The excuse always was, well, we have a maritime climate, we have a lot of rot, we need to treat our, our vines. And to a large extent, that is true. But I think these days, a lot of top estates uh, have 
demonstrated that you don't need to use loads of chemicals and fertilizers in order to get your grapes to to ripen. You can do this naturally in the in the vineyard. That is the, the part to pursue, uh, rather than manipulating the uh, the the production in uh, in in a way that is going to give um, unbalanced and in some cases not very healthy grapes. Mm. Uh, yeah, it, Bordeaux has a very good track record on. Um, on, on sustainability, but it also has its uh, challenges. Uh, as I mentioned at the start, uh, this book is no hagiography. Um, you're a lover of Bordeaux, yet there are points in the introduction where it could almost be an abusive relationship. Uh, you're very candid about some of the complexities of the Bordeaux way of doing things. Yes, it's not just a question of winemaking or, or farming. <clears throat> I mean, it's often been said, so I'm not the first person to point this out, that when a wine merchant goes to, to Burgundy to make a deal to buy some wines or get an allocation, they'll go down to the cellar with a couple of glasses and a pipette and try the wines and talk. In Bordeaux, you'll go into the, the chateau's office uh, with, a, with a calculator and a secretary and work out uh, what would be an acceptable deal. So it's a different approach. Um, Bordeaux is much more commercial. As I mentioned right at the beginning, it does have this commercial structure that's been there for centuries, and it's not really a region in the prestigious areas of of family estates. They they exist in some of the less well-known regions of Bordeaux, but say in, in Burgundy, and I know, alas, this is beginning to change, majority of estates are family-owned, and you're dealing with the, with the family. Often in Bordeaux, you're dealing with corporations or managers or I'm not saying that produces poor wines not 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 a bit of it but um, it's it's a different structure it's a different approach and it can be frustrating sometimes to to fans of Bordeaux wines yes because the, the prices aren't that stable they do tend to go up and down and often growers will wait for the results of the premier campaign especially Price the, the scores given by the, the leading critics. And if they get a very high score, they'll push the price up a bit more than they originally attended. Um, so you know, there's always pressure on getting the maximum return. I can't blame them for that, but it makes it a, a very sort of um, commercial uh, in, environment. And it also means there's less stability of pricing in, in Bordeaux than there would be, say, in other French re- regions. If you go to Burgundy, yes, of course, prices will go up in a great vintage, but um, they will also come down a bit in the poor vintage. Whereas in Bordeaux, they'll tend to say, oh, gosh, we had a terrible year last year. We better you know, put our prices up because we need to recoup some of our investments. If they have a great year, they say, hmm, we've got a great year here. We better put our prices up because it's a great year and people will reward us. So, you know, it's... Um, it's, it's it's complicated. Mm, yeah, it's kind of having your cake and eating it, I suppose. Uh, the Empremeur market uh, remains very important, uh, I think, to Bordeaux. Uh, for those listening who, who aren't familiar, it, this is uh, uh, wines that are, are are released for sale before they're uh, completed. Um, uh, the, the, the critics taste uh, samples of these wines very early in their life. It's something that I am terrible at as a taster. It's very, very difficult to, to, to taste those wines, I think, and make an assessment. But uh, the system remains important. You actually say in the book that you're not especially keen on on primeur tasting either, are you? 
Not, not at all. Not at all. I, I, I do it. I, I, I go there and I taste the wines on, on Primeur, and I usually do it blind, so I don't even know what the wines are, because I'm interested. But I don't score the wines, and I don't write about them. Basically, I don't write about wines, and this is true of 99% of the book, The Complete Bordeaux. Everything I write about is in bottle. In other words, it's a final product. And I've been very critical of uh, the Emprimeur system. And I, I likened it in, in an earlier book to you go into a garage a showroom and you say, oh, you'd like to buy a Ferrari. That's fantastic. Well, here it is. But a, you'll see it doesn't actually have a steering wheel yet. And it doesn't have uh, a motor yet. But, you know, we know this is going to be a fabulous car in a couple of years. So give us all your money. And it is a bit like that with Emprimeur. You're asked to come up with, with money up front, which is great news for the proprietors and to a lesser extent to, to the merchants. But yeah, you can make a, a serious mistake. There is very little control over what is being sampled in the Emprimeur tastings, which I think is a major criticism. And the Bordelais, for the most part, have resisted any kind of system which uh, verifies the accuracy of samples. If I'm tasting a wine Emprimeur, I often have no idea what I'm tasting. I know what the grapes in the vineyard are, but I don't know how the blend has been put together. And I do know that a cellar master and proprietor, if they find a barrel that's showing particularly well, they're more likely to bottle that for the on-premier tastings than do a representative sample of the entire production. I'm not saying everybody does that, but um, the temptation is is amazing because, you know, the higher score, the score you get the higher the price that you can probably charge for your wine. And people have made enormous investments in these prestigious properties, often buying them for hundreds of uh, uh, millions of, of euros. They need to get a return on that investment. The Emprimeur system is very much open to, to abuse, which is why I'm a, a major critic of it. But uh, I know that the majority of my, my, my colleagues make a serious attempt to assess those wines in a accurate and dispassionate way. But I also know that the, the system is against them because you really don't know what you're tasting. So I do have a rant about this in, in the book and in previous books. Um, so I won't go on about it any longer. Mm, it's a good rant, though. You mentioned, talking of systems, that the 1855 classification has taken on a life of its own. It's all uh, slightly absurd, isn't it? Well, you have to remember that Whereas, say, again, to come back to Burgundy, you have um, a hierarchy of vineyards, Grand Cru, Premier Cru, Village, and um, they are based on an assessment of the quality of those vineyards. It's not like that in Bordeaux. The reason why in 1855 uh, Lafitte, Mouton, and others um, were classified as first growths or top second growths um, is because the market was there for those wines. People were prepared to pay very high prices for them, which is indeed an indication of, of quality. But nobody was going into the vineyards and saying, mm, this is a really good patch of soil. People are saying, you know, if I buy this wine, chances are it will increase in value. And even if it doesn't, the quality is such that it's going to be drinkable with pleasure for, for many years. So the 1855 classification is the recognition of a commercial reality. It's not a recognition of the um, the quality of the soil or the grape varieties. Just to give you one example, um, Chateau Mouton, which is the first growth, they, like other first growths, have bought other chateaus and incorporated them into Mouton. So something that was a fifth growth or even less 
suddenly becomes a first growth. Now, I, I know the people who make the wines at the first growths, and I know that if they don't think the wine is outstanding quality, it doesn't go into the, the Grand Vin. It'll be used for the second or third wine or even sold off. So I'm not saying they are cynical about this, but nevertheless, it's a system where a first growth can expand um, simply by buying neighboring parcels, uh, often at an inflated price, but nevertheless, they can do that. And those vineyards automatically become first growths, which is a bit strange. It is rather, uh, yes. Um, your guide uh, is um, so comprehensive, uh, obviously breaking down the uh, region into its uh, sub-regions, into its component parts, and then into individual estates. Um, uh, this is now in its fourth edition. It must be an absolutely enormous undertaking uh, to keep all of this up to date. It, it is, but um, one is greatly helped by the, the internet. I mean, uh, there are countless newsletters about Bordeaux and about changes. There are websites of the leading chateaus. There are newsletters uh, from merchants. There are loads of ways to get uh, information about what's going on in Bordeaux. But Bordeaux is in a constant state of flux. I mean, this book only came out about uh, six weeks ago. And since then, a a second growth, Chateau Lascombe, over 100 hectares in Margot, has been sold. So things are always changing. And yes, I have to stay on on top of that. And sometimes it's not that easy. Um, but uh, well, that's, that's part of what I what I do. You also conclude in your introduction, which is a, a, you know, a weighty introduction, I, I keep referencing the introduction, but it's, uh, it's, uh, it is, uh, it's more than an introduction, really, it's a, it's kind of a book in itself. And, and, and it's great for that, by the way, just uh, lest you think I, I'm saying it's over long. Thank you. you say that the wines of Bordeaux have never been better. I think I think it's I think it's true. I mean, I think it's not only true of Bordeaux. I think it would be true in, in Burgundy, be true in the Languedoc. There's more technical expertise. There's an army of specialist consultants who look at the vineyards, who look at the grape varieties, who advise growers, you know, don't plant this grape variety here. If you've got it, you should really replace it with something else. Um, when you're fermenting the wine, don't ferment at too high a temperature. Have a slower fermentation to extract more flavor in a, at a lower temperature. So there are all kinds of refinements in the viticulture and also in the winemaking that have allowed quality to, to improve steadily. Um, th- there were vintages like 1972, which basically was like drinking asparagus juice. They were horrible wines. They were unripe. That couldn't happen now. The, the growers can intervene in ways to make sure that that kind of ghastly vintage doesn't occur. Again, it's not going to make a poor vintage into a great vintage, but they can prevent some of the horrors of the, of the past. A poor vintage in Bordeaux is pretty rare. I think the last one I can think of was probably uh, 2013, which wasn't terrible, but it was certainly patchy. The other factor, of course, is is competition. I mean, you just can't afford to make a mediocre wine. Um, and here, the Emprimeur tastings uh, play a positive role because if you get a bunch of low scores for some of the leading critics, it's not going to do your reputation much good. So there's an incentive to do the best that you can. Um, obviously, you've got to work with the vineyards that you've got, with the, the teams that you've got, um, with the terroir that you've got. But nevertheless, there is this incentive to produce the best 
possible wine from the materials at your disposal. And that wasn't the case a long time ago. There were people who had a secure market, say, in Belgium. So they just churned out all this stuff and sent it off to, to Belgium, where merchants and their customers wouldn't complain too much if the price was right. They really can't get away with that any longer. And I think that's why the quality of the wine is uh, is so much higher. I, I think at the moment Bordeaux is sensational in quality. But as I say, it's not the only region in, in France or indeed in, in, in Europe or Australia where that's the case. Everybody has upped their game because they really have no choice. And thank goodness for that. Uh, there's a very uh, useful vintage guide at the back of the book. Uh, and my birth year, uh, sadly, is 1972, which is um, uniformly dreadful. <laughs> Bad luck. Uh, indeed. Uh, so, uh, the, I mean, it, it does sound like an absolute stinker, 1972, from what you were saying. But um, the other end of the spectrum, what's your favourite vintage? Because you've um, tasted all of them, or pretty much all of them, for sure. As a general rule, I prefer vintages that are lean and precise and elegant to vintages that are big and fleshy and, and super ripe. So what that means in practice is that I like years such as uh, 1996, 2010. Okay, you did have some high alcohols, but you also had high tannins and high acidities. It was a very complex year. And then vintages such as 2016, which are similar in, in that respect, in that they had high alcohol, but, but also uh, high acidity, a great deal of intensity, to use Hughes' term again, vintages with, with cut. Those are the wines that are my personal preferences. But, you know, there are absolutely gorgeous wines on the right bank, you know, 2015 or uh, 2000, which are voluptuous and hedonistic. And um, I would appreciate them almost as much. But I do like that extra bit of elegance in, in the wine, because it's the character of the wine that makes you want to have a second glass. If you just have a mouthful of big fruit, which can happen, say, with a Napa Cabernet, you get sated fairly quickly. At least I do. I can't lock those wines back. But you have a really well-balanced um, Bordeaux. You can drink it in reasonable quantities without falling over. And uh, beyond the first, second, third, fourth, fifth growths uh, and their often eye-watering prices, um, there is still a, a great deal of value to be had in Bordeaux, because they produce an awful lot of wine, don't they? Yes, yes. I mean, th this is one of the, I, I hope, the valuable features of my book, is that it's not just about classified growths or well-established properties like, you know, Chabot Blanc or Ozone or in Saint-Emilion. I'm equally interested in regions such as Castillon, which is next door to Saint-Emilion, um, uh, Blay, Bourg, the Graves, um, where the prices are a fraction of those in the uh, in the classified growths, but the the soils are good, and if the owners are conscientious, uh, yields are kept reasonable. Uh, the wines are oaked but not over oaked, and so on and so forth. If they're well farmed and well made, the, um, uh, the those regions have the ability to produce absolutely delicious wines, and. I taste a lot of Napa wines. I do like Napa wines, but I look at some of them and I look at the price and I think, you know, I could buy four bottles of Castillon for the price of this wine and it would give me a lot more pleasure. And I think it's very important that um, Bordeaux tries to shed this image of, of being, you know, just 
pure luxury and prestige and uh, showing off this whole concept of label drinking. I mean, it's still very important. I gather in Asia, I don't have that much experience. But um, for the consumer, it's worth remembering that there are huge swathes of Bordeaux that make excellent wines, mostly red, but also white, that are delicious and affordable. Okay, they may not age for 20 years, that doesn't matter. Most people don't have cellars these days. They drink their wines within three, five, eight years. And there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. And these other regions, the Côte de Bordeaux, the Grave, are perfectly adapted to that kind of consumption. And they offer absolutely terrific value. I'm not saying everything is good from them. There are some poor wines there, um, but um, not that many. And it's the job of myself and my various colleagues to identify the wines that offer value and quality. Yeah, and the guide, uh, the the book, uh, is uh, really uh, helpful uh, on that front, actually, because it is um, it's so comprehensive and goes way beyond the big names, the famous estates, as you say, which is um, which is really great, very very useful. Um, just a well, final. I don't owe anybody anything. I, I'm totally independent. It, it's true, if I have to declare an interest, that I do stay in certain chateaus because I just can't afford to sit in hotels for for weeks and weeks in, in Bordeaux. And some of the proprietors have have become friends. Some of them you know, barely give me the time of day. So I try not to be influenced by these things. Maybe it's a little naive of me, but I. I I think I, I really am independent and I have properties that are owned by people I consider friends. And if I don't like the wine, I won't hesitate to, to say so. And I don't think they hold it against me. Um, I, I think one has to be honest and not beholden to, well, any school of winemaking or any group of winemakers or it, you've got to do your best to, to stay independent. It's not easy, uh, but I, I think I do it, and I can think of other people who do it as well. It's very important. It is very important, and it is evident uh, in the complete Bordeaux as well. Uh, so uh, you you should be um, very uh, uh, satisfied um, with, with uh, what uh, what you've uh, delivered. I think um, and I, I don't just say that to, to be a creep. I, I really did enjoy uh, what I've read of the book so far. Um, and its comprehensive nature. Thank you. I, I can't let you go um, without asking you uh, the question that we kind of ask our distinguished guests uh, when they come on uh, the podcast, and that is um, a desert island wine. And we're going to make yours, um, I think, more specific. Um, what would be your desert island Bordeaux wine? If you could only have one and you were stuck on an island, uh, and it, but, but it had to be from Bordeaux, which I think is important in this context, uh, what would it be? It's a, a nightmare question, but um, I, I'll try and answer it. I would say Chateau La Fleur, which is a small property in uh, in Pomerol, and um, it's owned by the Guinodeau family, known for, for some time. And they are the least flash people imaginable, even though their wines do fetch very high prices. And they're fanatical in the vineyard. They divide their already small vineyard into numerous plots and farm them separately, monitor the grapes very closely and create these magical blends. And even though they only make, I don't know what the figure is, 10, 15,000 bottles, they also make a, a second wine. So it's not as if they bottle everything at a high price. Um, the, the second wine is not cheap either, but nevertheless, it shows that they're only prepared to put into bottle with their Chateau La Fleur label, the wines that they think are, are truly outstanding. They age beautifully, and being in 
Pomerol with a, a lot of Merlot, but also a lot of Cabernet Franc. Um, they have this uh, sensual quality that is irresistible, and they age extremely well. I think I am slightly influenced by my affection for the family because they they are a contradiction of what I was saying earlier, which is that Bordeaux is all about business. The, these people, yes, of course, they, they want to make a good living, but it's also about quality and relationships and family and um, visiting there. You're likely to meet three generations of, of the family. And it's, it's what a wine estate should be. And as the quality is, is absolutely impeccable, I would, if I had to choose one estate, I would pick uh, Chateau Lafleur. So there's your answer. Great. A dream answer to a nightmare question. Uh, Stephen, um, (laughs) thank you very much. Congratulations on uh, the book. And uh, thank you so much for taking the time out to join us on The Drinking Hour. It's my pleasure. Thank you very much for inviting me, David. Stephen Brook, author of The Complete Bordeaux, the fourth edition now on sale. And if that's whetted your appetite for more about Bordeaux, then you're in the right place. Uh, In 86 episodes of The Drinking Hour, uh, bizarrely, we've only actually featured the region once in a chat about uh, the hot 50 wines uh, back in episode 20. But we're going to make up for it with two special editions brought to you with Wines of Bordeaux starting next week. We'll hear from its dynamic new generation of winemakers. And I shall have a go at blending, uh, asking a top winemaker to critique my efforts. And I've never made a wine in my life. The Drinking Hour on Food FM. You're listening to The Drinking Hour with David Kermode in association with the International Wine and Spirit Competition, using the best in the world to judge the best in the world. Well, we round off, as ever, with some medal winners from the IWSC Hall of Fame. Uh, Next time, we'll have a selection of Bordeaux medal winners for our uh, special edition, uh, the first of two. Uh, But this time, uh, we're featuring some incredible wines from elsewhere in the world that reflect uh, where those Bordeaux grapes have travelled. And Stephen and I were talking about the incredible uh, global presence of those uh, Bordeaux grapes. So a great place to start, a gold medal winner for Washington State in the USA, uh, one of the biggest wineries there, Chateau Saint-Michel, Cabernet Sauvignon 2018, uh, a gold medal winner, as I say, with 95 points. Here's what the judging panel had to say. Elegant and pronounced aromas of fine red and dark fruit leap from the glass. A wonderful concentration of fruit with eucalyptus, cacao and chocolate adding complexity. Characterful and vibrant with fine tannins, cedar oak notes and a spicy finish. It's to New Zealand next. I was actually on the judging panel for this uh, wonderful wine. Uh, Church Road McDonald series Cabernet Sauvignon 2018 from Hawke's Bay. Uh, This was a gold medal winner, 95 points. I remember it well. Uh, my fellow judges, Isabel, uh, Master Sommelier, and uh, another Sommelier, Andrea Altavilla, uh, also super impressed, as was uh, Dersiu Viana Jr. MW, who was in charge that day, who had to ratify the result. Uh, here's our tasting note. Elegant, savoury and smoky aromas, which continue onto the palate and complement the rich, dark fruit palate. The wine has good typicity with well-integrated oak spices and fine tannins. A generous example, 
with a sleek, powerful structure. Next, a Bordeaux blend from Japan. Hombo Shuzu, Chateau Mars, Hosaka, Hinashiro, Cabernet Merlot, Late Harvest 2018 from Yamanashi Province, a gold medal winner. 95 points. Here's the tasting note from the judges. A polished nose with succulent dark fruit enhanced by chocolate and mocha oak. This wine shows great harmony on the palate, expanding into complex notes of green tea, limestone, minerals and rose. This is a standout example with superb personality. And next to another incredible wine, uh, not just a gold medal winner this time, but also a trophy winner. Uh, so reflecting best in show, this is from Mexico, uh, Monte Zanich Edición Limitada Cabernet Franc 2020. Uh, two masters of wine and a master sommelier on the panel here. And I also got to taste this blind at the uh, trophy judging sessions. Um, here's the tasting note. Alluring varietal benchmark on the nose and palate. Everything you hope for. Black cherry, cassis, green pepper, pencil shavings and earthiness. Ripe with well-balanced acidity, smooth tannins and refreshing long finish. A classed act, we said. And whilst we're on the subject of trophy winners, here's a great place to round off. Uh, Inniskillen Niagara Ice Wine Cabernet Sauvignon 2019. This from the Niagara Peninsula in Ontario, Canada. A gold medal winner. It took home a trophy as well. Uh, Ice wine, as I'm sure you know, is where the grapes literally freeze on the vines, increasing their intensity. And here's the very warm tasting note. A uh, wonderful green bronze hue that could be mistaken for masala. Concentrated nose of toffee, coffee and baked apples. Great acidity draws out the palate of bruised apples, hazelnuts and warm fig jam. Ultra penetrating concentration and focus in this. An absolute stunner, they said. What a way to round off. That's it for this time. My thanks to Stephen Brook. You can follow us at Food FM Radio on Instagram and Twitter. I'm Mr. Venusaurus on Instagram and Twitter. Do join us next time for the first of our Bordeaux special editions. But until then, it's goodbye. The Drinking Hour on Food FM. You're listening to The Drinking Hour with David Kermode in association with the International Wine and Spirit Competition, using the best in the world to judge the best in the world.